Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. Hi, I'm Baji Illuminati, VP of Marketing at Social Native. In this podcast, we interview some of today's top marketers to find out exactly how the campaigns they're most proud of were made. Welcome to Made by Marketing. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Sophia Aladinoye, the head of growth marketing at ARFA. Today, we'll be talking about the beauty industry, navigating company acquisitions, and jumping from enterprise to the early stage startup world. Sophia, welcome. Thank you so much, Raji. I'm really, really, really excited to be here. You've had an amazing career from the beauty industry to agency and retail. You've had such an interesting background. Can you just start by telling us about your journey and how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. It's one of those things where I saw this when I was in my earlier years of my career. And, you know, someone was talking about how like sometimes, sometimes, you don't necessarily see how your, the path is going to go until you look in the rearview mirror and then it all makes sense. So for sure, when I was going forward, oftentimes I was like, I don't know if I'm making the right move here. I'm just going off of gut or instinct or what feels right. But now when I look back, I was like, oh no, this all does make sense. I can see it. So for me, I actually was supposed to be an attorney. I went to college, was pre-law. I went to University of Pennsylvania. So I was on the pre-law track was taking courses at the you know law school, like or at least going and interviewing attorneys, like all of that stuff. I was like there in the mix. But then my junior and senior year, looking up law schools, right? And like figuring out what my next step was gonna be, just like maybe do I do a dual degree, all that fun stuff. I started hyperventilating and I was like, something's wrong. <laughs> and it kept happening. I was like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but something's wrong. So it like forced me to kind of take a step back and go, what are the things I'm into right now on campus? So I was like, you know, I was in a whole bunch of different groups and stuff, obviously doing my studies, but then I also had work study. So I noticed when I like took a step back that like I had, I was always taking on communications work study jobs. Like my very first one in my freshman year, I was like, a, uh, a, like I worked at it at a nursery with kids, which like who doesn't, like they're adorable. And then after that, I was always in communications and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And so I didn't know what marketing was. I didn't know it was a thing. But then after like talking to a whole bunch of different folks, I realized that it was a thing. And then my very first quote unquote job, because it was just an internship at the time, but it really put me on this path, was I interned at Fisher Price that summer and it changed everything for me. And the thing was, this is not to say I didn't enjoy my time at the law firms. Like I enjoyed my time. I 
the associates were always super cool, the paralegals, the partners, everybody was always, always really, really cool and nice to work with. They all did tell me that I probably should not become an attorney. They were like, we wish somebody would have told us, do not do this. And of course, I was like in the corporate law space in New York City. So I think it's a little bit different than lots of other areas of law. Um, but they all were like, Sophia, you're a very bubbly, wonderful person. Don't do this. And I was like, guys, it'll be great. I'm going to love it. And they were like, mm, we don't know. <laughs> and then, like I said, the only internship I did throughout my four years in college outside of law was the summer right before senior year. And I interned at Fisher-Price and I loved it. The SVP of marketing, Tom Emelo, he was so awesome. Like he was so nice. He was like very specific. It wasn't just like an internship. He like made sure that all of us interns got to meet every department, got to sit with every department, better understand what every department was doing. Like I would be in meetings and he made sure to like call on me and be like, hey, what do you think? Right? Like he was very, very encouraging and just being like, what are your thoughts? Every thought makes sense because we're here and we're building things as we go, right? We're creating campaigns. We're we're figuring this, this stuff out. And for me, that was like a light bulb. So then I went back to school my senior year and then started taking classes at Wharton um, in marketing and just like really deep dove into it. So I had a complete shift my senior year, but it, it changed everything for me. My very first job in marketing was in email marketing at Bloomingdale's.com. And that started me on that trajectory. Then from there, I went to go work at Ogilvy um, in digital and social. I then went... Then from there, I was like, I want to go on the brand side. And I went to Carol's Daughter, pre and post acquisition by L'Oreal. And then I joined Sundial Brands. I joined it pre and post acquisition of Unilever. And then now I'm here in an early stage startup. And so when I look back at my career, I see how my passion, my very, very early passions that I discovered in college, pretty late actually in my college career, in business, in marketing, in playing with both the analytical and creative sides of my brain, it all makes sense. At the time, as I was navigating through, I didn't really always know if I was making the right moves. But looking back, it all makes sense. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is this move into an early stage startup is the complete right move for me. So then most recently, you've been within the beauty industry. So what have you seen across the various brands are like the core truths that come through in marketing beauty products? So I think that's a really great question. I feel like what has evolved over time, right? Beauty has gone through such a massive transition in like the last five to 10 years, right? It always used to be, which I mean, let's be clear, in general, advertising, marketing, so many other industries have gone through, and so many other verticals have gone through massive shifts, a lot of in part due to digital. Um, and people think it's more about the channels and it really is just because it's lowered the barriers of entry right across the board. So there was a time when it was all just about pushing people in order to look like some aspirational figure or being that oftentimes felt very, very far removed. And beauty is shifting rapidly away from that right? Now it's all about how everyday people are using beauty products and everyday people are bringing beauty products to life in a variety of different ways. Um, even I recently noticed that, you know, makeup is still huge, right? And makeup will always be huge, but there's also a much bigger push now on skincare, right? And the makeup obviously is the one I'm focused on right now, but as a universal truth right now, it's really, really, really focusing on how do people bring beauty into their lives every single day? And I think a truth now with beauty is that beauty is no longer a mandate. And I think that's across the board for a lot of consumers. Yeah, that's very interesting. And you mentioned earlier that digital has lowered the barriers of entry across the board. Is this in terms of like, rather than 
perfect models that are seemingly unattainable. It's like consumers and influencers and everybody can become a beauty creator. Is that what you were referring to? Or is it more on brands being able to enter the market? I think it's both. I think the amount of beauty brands that have cropped up in the last five to seven years um, that have just like entered the market. And of course, everybody talks about Fenty Beauty, right? Everyone talks about Fenty Beauty. And of course, yes, it definitely has the Rihanna effect. But it's also the fact that it took a completely different perspective on the beauty industry. Um, The beauty industry literally only had a handful of foundation shades, a handful of um, offerings for people. And so you had everybody trying to make themselves fit into that. And now that's not the case at all, right? Now everybody's chasing after the Rihanna effect um, and trying to chase that down. But to me, beauty now really is from both ends, from brands that are stepping into the space to people creating looks all of the time. Like watching YouTube videos of influencers, that could become a rabbit hole. Like if you're into that or interested, that's a rabbit hole and you're in that watching it and digesting all of that content all the time. And you think about it, how many beauty influencers have gotten to a certain level and then from there are now creating their own lines. So I definitely think from both sides, it's lowered, right? I think digital plays a role definitely from the influencer side. And I also think from the side of brands, I can now be looking up, and I think this is probably part of it. I think it's a combination of digital as well as there were so many underserved communities. And so, and that's from across shades, that's from levels of sensitivity with skin, um, needs for hair, all of this stuff. So you have all these underserved communities um, and people then had to, and we're leveraging social, right? In order to talk to each other, in order to find solutions that they weren't finding out in the marketplace. So brands weren't serving them. And so they started creating products that would better help them, right? And then other people who now begin to create brands off of that go, oh, wait, I see a need, right? And so I think those things together are continuing to, because I don't think it's done. I think it's actually continuing to accelerate, completely transform the beauty industry and I think the personal care industry overall, because that ripple effect is also happening. So interesting how many things are going into play. There's the influencers, and then there's the kind of democratization of beauty representatives. Everybody's beautiful in their own right. And then there's the new brands popping up. And then there's also this creating products to fill every single demand. So there's this realization that not every person looks the same and that every market needs to be served equally. So there's so much happening in this space right now. Absolutely. So you were at Carol's Daughter when it was acquired by L'Oreal and then you were at Sundial when it was acquired by Unilever. So that must have been very interesting to you. Can you kind of talk us through what those experiences were like? Were they similar across the two acquisitions? It was so interesting. So Carol's Daughter, I came on board And then we were moving very rapidly towards an acquisition. And I literally came on board when we were making pivots internally in order to, like we were shifting out of prestige into mass. And then from there, moving on into the actual acquisition. Um, And so when the acquisition occurred, for me, it was was one of those things. And, you know, working at Carol's Daughter was by far one of the most incredible experiences that I've had throughout my career. Lisa Price, the founder, is amazing. Uh, we're a very small group of people at the headquarters. I just had so just had fun. We just had fun. We we did a lot of work. We worked hard. But we also had a lot, a lot of fun. Um, and uh, to this day, I'm still hanging out with people from Carol's Daughter. To this day, 
So I think for me, I call that out because to a certain extent, I didn't really feel the full impact of the acquisition. We knew what was happening. Things were adjusting. Folks from L'Oreal were coming in. One of my, one of like a line of great bosses I've had, still in contact with her. She came over from L'Oreal and became our VP and our CMO. I think for a long time, not much changed. We were still in our office in Tribeca. We were still doing our things, right? But then there's always a point when the acquisition, because acquisitions take much longer than I think many people realize, right? So a purchase happens of a business and the integration into the parent company or the new parent company takes longer than I think people actually anticipate. I think people often think, oh, right away, the shift is going to happen. And they think right away, I know I did, that right away, the shift is going to happen across the board, but it doesn't, right? Like certain departments are affected sooner than others, right? So I'm in marketing. And so my department often didn't get impacted in both acquisitions until much, much, much later, if at all, right? But other departments like finance or things of that nature, those tend to get you know, affected sooner than the other departments because, you know, now you're integrating into new systems and, da, 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 da. and if the systems aren't the same, then all of those adjustments have to be made. Like I've seen that happen now twice. Um, and so I think for me, because of the department I was in as well, I didn't necessarily feel the change as much. I didn't necessarily see the change right away and changes, right? And so I think that was the case with Carol's Order and L'Oreal and that was my first one. So when it came to Sundial, and then our founder and CEO announced that we were partnering with Unilever and that that's what was going to happen next. Um, I think my approach was different because I was like, oh, okay, I know what this is, right? Like, I've, I think every acquisition is different. I will say that. I don't think every acquisition is the same, but there are certain things that are, that are similar. Um, and so I remember because there were lots of people internally who were like, well, what do you think is going to happen? And I was like, oh, well, you know probably these adjustments will be made and probably these things will happen. And that's just what it is because I'd already lived through one, right? Like I'd already gone through one. Um, and so I think for me, there were similarities for sure between the acquisitions. For sure there were similarities, but again, like I said, there were also differences because of the business, right? So Sundial Brands is also a distinctly different business than the Carol's Daughter. It's a portfolio of brands. While Carol's Daughter is Carol's Daughter. Um, and so you also have the integration of a portfolio of brands that deal with and serve different needs, right? And so that also, for sure, plays a role in how things are navigated. Sundial Brands was also a bigger company. So those things, I think, also play a role. And Unilever is massive, right? Like Unilever is massive. And so for me, I really enjoyed Unilever. Unilever was just lots of very happy people. Who like are efficient, getting their work done, moving things forward. They're different structurally than, let's say, a Sundial Brands. But I just remember I, I made sure, and I think I, for me, my approach in both acquisitions was the same. Where I was just like, okay, well, we've been acquired. And I'm one of those people where I rather lean in to figure out things and see what things are versus, you know, sit back. So I leaned in in both. Right? I was making friends and connecting with people at L'Oreal and like learning about the culture and the businesses and how things are structured and all that stuff. And the same thing with Unilever. It was like, hey, I'm going to go. Like I literally just had like drinks recently with uh, somebody from Unilever. Because to me, that's, that's how you learn about 
the new environment you're stepping into. That's how you learn. For me, that's how I approach it. Definitely, definitely similarities, but then also differences. And I think that's really good. Just a good way to live your life is like looking at changes as exciting and as in new opportunities and just throwing yourself into it to learn as much as you can and grow with that change instead of resisting it. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, I think for me as well, having really fantastic founders, it just, it goes a long way. Like I said earlier, Lisa Price of Carol's Daughter was amazing. Love her. And Richelieu Dennis of Sundial Brands, probably one of the smartest people I've ever encountered. Businesses, it's half, half of it is you're, you have to be invested in the founder. Otherwise, it's going to be really, really hard <laughs> to navigate through any journey that's happening. I'm curious to learn more about your role at Sundial. So can you talk us more through what your role entailed? Sure. So my role was to focus on digital strategy and emerging tech, right? So what that meant was that part of my role was literally focused on emerging tech, which is really fun and cool. So from augmented reality to SMS innovations and figuring out the best way to be able to integrate that into the business to building out chatbots to be able to help extend product education and category education for some of our brands to then figuring out how we're going to be able to like build out potentially and the hope was to build out websites for some of our smaller brands right and so and like from like a peer-to-peer perspective and so it was a wide range of things that I got to focus on and it plugged into lots of other things so our you know, head of e-com, I was working very closely with him and figuring out all the different ways that we could bring a variety of different activations and things to life. And then from a cross-functional perspective, right, we're working with a ton of other folks across media, across uh, PR, influencers, across the wide range of things in order to bring active events, right, community events, in order to really integrate digital and social, because social for Sundown brands, particularly for Shea Moisture, um, is a massive vehicle, right? And so really figuring out how are we going to motivate and move our community um, in a way that was going to really help to drive and deepen a level of not just awareness, but advocacy, um, which are, we have, you know, Shane Marshall has incredibly vocal community, but really continuing to hone that and continuing to bring that to life. We talked about influencers in the beauty industry earlier. Did you guys leverage influencers and how's your relationship with them? Absolutely. So we had our head of influencer marketing um, because I mean, it, it's a huge job, right? Often she was literally working full-time with the influencers and then she and I would be working directly in order to integrate influencers in the things that we were doing when it came to communications across social or things that we were doing for SMS or things of that nature. So she was developing these relationships with them one-on-one. To be frank, that was the same thing that we did at Carol's Daughter, right? It was just like working directly with the influencers and developing relationships with them. And it goes a really, really long way, particularly when you're working with influencers and you've worked with them throughout their own journey, right? When they first were starting out and now they're massive, it goes a really, really long way and it builds a deep sense of loyalty and connection. What types of campaigns and strategies were you running with them? And what do you think works well when thinking about influencer activations within the beauty industry? Yeah, I definitely think I've seen this done more than one way. And I'm going to 
pull from experiences at Sundial, at Carol's Daughter, and even when I worked on the agency side. I think for me, what I have found throughout has been, I don't think enough folks or folks in the marketing space just get on the phone with the influencers. I think a lot of times it's like, you know, seeding out to people. And, and I, I get that it's sometimes it's difficult because you're trying to produce a campaign at scale. But if, if most of the conversations or interactions are only happening through email, it it doesn't really allow for a conversation. I remember one time I was working on a campaign. We really were like crafting things out and wanted to communicate a specific message, right, as a brand. But I never wanted any of the influencers we were working with to ever feel like we were dictating, right? Because influencers, the, the huge reason why many of them are influencers is for the creative outlet, right? It allows them to be able to create. It allows them to be able to communicate with their communities that they've built. And I think that oftentimes if you as a marketer don't get on the phone and just connect with them and talk to them or get to know them a little bit better, then you're never going to have the personalized content that you want from them or even really build a campaign. I remember I got on the phone one time, uh, I think this was either Agency Life or when I was at Carol's Daughter, and I got on the phone with some of these influencers just to like, hey, we want to kind of do a takeover. This was like when Instagram takeovers were a really big thing back then. Um, and really just, we just had a conversation. It was like, hey, look, sketch out what we were looking for, right? Because I think oftentimes if you don't do that, then the influencers are very, very confused. You can't just send them product without being clear about what you're looking for. So sketch that out. And then you get on the phone with them and you connect with them and it takes things further. Like she immediately got it. She was like, oh, I understand exactly what you need. And we had an incredible Instagram takeover. Um, but if you can't, as a marketer, get on the phone with every influencer, then how do you build a sense of connection? Yeah, because this is their world and they're proud of the brand that they've built and they value the audience that they've created and they want to continue to create really relevant and authentic content. So looking at them as a partner seems like a really great piece of advice that everybody should take into their strategy, whether it's a micro or macro or celebrity or whatever size influencer. So speaking of the micro side, I know Sundial and Social Native have done quite a few campaigns together. Did you um, did you kind of start working with us just for the content and looking at that content at scale or for the influencer side? Can you kind of talk us through how you discovered Social Native and what drew you to the business model? Absolutely. So I think it was two things. One, I met Jeff Ragavan, who I love. And then I met other folks on the team. And I was like, everybody's really awesome and really cool. And so simultaneously, I was in the market to be looking for, we needed we needed support from the content side. I think, I think more and more of the landscape or the marketplace is just understanding how big of a lift content curation and production is. But for me, it was like, okay, so how do we supplement the content needs that we have across our portfolio of brands? And how do we supplement it with really great content at a, uh, a lower cost for the scale that we need, right? We don't have the resources in order to be producing highly editorialized shoots all the time. We just don't. From a bandwidth perspective, we just don't have the resources. So if we don't have the resources then how do we uh, go about creating content, right? Um, that feels good and that feels right and that really feels like it aligns with each of the brand aesthetics while simultaneously still having it feel real, 
And I know real and authentic are words that are thrown out around all of the time. Um, but I think I think a better word that I, I will I will use that it feels human, right? <laughs> you want content that feels human, um, especially in a world where all of us are more and more plugged in from a digital perspective. We as humans then will naturally crave things that feel human. So for me, that was that, that was my primary focus. As we were partnering together and we're producing content, then it was the added benefit of being able to also have all of these amazing content creators also post the content on their platforms and give us that additional reach and that additional awareness, for, especially for our smaller brands. Um, and so those things together, for me, kind of made it a no-brainer. In a lot of ways, that will be more and more brands will start to adopt that approach where you need high volumes of content, especially as you're thinking about all your different social channels, the, the frequency of posting, paid, every channel that requires content. So you need you have more channels now, you need more content now, and you need it at a faster pace. So your traditional content creation methods don't really scale in a cost-effective way. And then your consumers or micro-influencers or creators, however we want to call them, they have this added benefit of having real content, human content that resonates on a deeper level because it just feels more personal. Absolutely. As you're kind of thinking about these campaigns and, and opening up the content creation gates to such a wide amount of people, how do you put measures in place to ensure that you're still on brand, but you're also empowering the creators to follow their brand and create content that's authentic to them. So how do you kind of find that balance? Working with you guys at Social Native has made it really, really easy. You guys have a system in, in your system, which allows us to rate and rank the assets as they come through. And I say assets because obviously you guys have evolved past just photos now at this point. And so it allows, I remember when we were at Sundown, it allowed my team to just be able to go in and they could rank the images or the videos and rate them, right? And kind of go, oh, this makes sense or it doesn't. And your system literally cycles out any content that got a low score. So then we don't have to worry about working with that content creator again. We don't even have to worry about being beholden to a contract with that content creator um, if they didn't produce something that we liked or if they aren't producing or if we see a second thing from them and we're like, oh, we really still don't like this, then it gets cycled out, right? And so we don't have to worry or be focused on that. And instead we can be focused on, hey, did this hit all the points that we laid out in the brief we sent over? Is this, you know, if for certain products, is it is the lighting in the way that we really want it to be? Um, is it highlighting the product name and benefits in the way that we really want to bring to life for a campaign or just from an evergreen standpoint? And so the measurements really, because we didn't have to worry about, um, okay, we've got to keep moving this forward, even if the content wasn't great, then we could just focus on what's the overall aesthetic that we've established for this particular brand. Our, one of our first campaigns we did together uh, was for Nubian Heritage. Um, and the content we got back, I remember my team, they were like, this is really great. I was like, isn't it? But it felt right. It was seasonal because we were doing it during the summertime. It was seasonal. It was perfect. And it gave us an opportunity to have the Nubian Heritage products featured in environments that we generally weren't going to be able to capture on our own at scale. We were able to then measure and assess the content 
off of literally for that campaign off of what does the lighting look like? Does this feel right? Does the, and then match it back and see how it aligns with the rest of our feed. Does this align with how we usually shoot our content? Does this align with how our content usually looks on our feed? At the beginning, particularly, it was very much qualitative in the way that we are measuring the content. Um, and then over time, then as we started getting more content from the campaigns we were doing, then you add in the quantitative, which is, okay, so some of the social native content that we fed into the feeds across our um, various brands, oh, this one, when, we, when it's shot like this, it actually gets incredibly high engagement. Great. So when we submit another brief, now off of that data we just pulled, now we're going to incorporate that to go, hey, you know, Nikayo Beauty, if it's, um, if you're featuring a product right next to the face or the, you know, the influencer is smiling a lot or things of that particular nature, that really works. So let's make sure that we get more of that content. Getting the data off of the performance then helped us to make our briefs more data-driven and more descriptive. And it's probably pretty interesting to see just like the first campaign that comes in, for instance, and then you can look at the data to see which one's performing better and then use that to, to inform your next brief and to inform the next round of content that you create. Absolutely. That's interesting. And then I one clarification on your earlier statement around just like when you actually have the creators both in their social channels. So you mentioned that you primarily do it for some of the smaller brands. Why is that? Have you seen that micro-influencers work better for emerging brands versus more established brands? Or did you just kind of already have the strategy built out for the more established brands? So when we first started with you guys, even in the very beginning across all of our brands, we, we were like, hey, we requested that no content would be pushed first, right? Because first we just wanted to get the system into the habit of like understanding the things that we, were, we wanted and the things we didn't want just off of our ranking. And then I think probably after a couple of campaigns in, then we started going, okay, great. Yes, let the content creators push out the content. Um, for some of our bigger brands, we were open to it, but it wasn't necessary. We were far more invested in having it for the smaller brands because we understood that every little bit counts, right? Um, so when you're a smaller brand, you have smaller resources um, and you likely have smaller awareness. So every little bit counts to have influencers and content creators out there supporting the content and putting it out. It just adds a layer of awareness that really works. And then hopefully becoming an actual customer. For the smaller brands, for sure, it was just a nice added benefit and ripple effect that we definitely leveraged um, because we knew that like I said, every little bit counts. Um, while for the bigger brands, we also leaned into that. Like for instance, Shea Moisture, but specifically Shea Moisture Baby. It's a smaller piece of the entire Shea Moisture pie. Um, so we definitely were like, hey, let's have the content creators be pushing out the content. I mean, babies are super adorable. Um, products are super adorable. Why not, right? Um, and so it was, the approach was very much after we've done and gotten some insight into what's working after we've kind of trained the system a little bit to better understand what works um, for our different brands, then let's let it fly. And then at least we're getting something back um, even more than the great content that we're pushing out. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I like that a lot. So then in terms of reusing the content, 
what channels are you using it on and what are some of the results that you've seen? For us, so I'll answer this in two ways. The first way was we definitely leveraged it across paid social for sure. Um, and we did some fun stuff, right? So we did some fun stuff with the content. Um, and in a moment, I'm going to talk to you, which you, you know, right? We've done some great work with you guys and talk about the case study um, that we did with you guys and our, another one of our vendors. Um, but then also I'll talk to you about what I wanted to do, but we just, we didn't have it. We couldn't do it at the time because our website was undergoing, uh, it was being revamped. So we couldn't leverage it as far as I wanted to. Um, we definitely had some social native content that was being integrated into our site. So worked with, again, our e-com team in order to be able to start integrating UGC onto our site. So from that standpoint, for sure, social native content was on the site. But wanted to take it a little bit further and see if we could also start integrating it into emails and things of that nature. But because our site was being revamped, then we weren't necessarily pushing as much um, from that perspective in regards to content, right? Um, but I definitely saw the opportunity to extend the content across a multitude of different platforms. But it was it had, it had more to do just of where we were in regards to our timelines um, than anything else. Um, but what we did do, like I said, was paid social and uh, obviously organic social as well and earn. So we did across those three and. Uh, the case study that we did with you guys. So we ran content in general um, for seasonal campaigns that we were running as well as um, for just more targeted needs from for our retailers. Um, but then we also did a really great case study with you guys where we were optimizing for creative, right? And we were really trying to see whether or not if we do highly curated content, highly curated creative, will it actually bear fruit in regards to purchase intent? Um, and so another vendor that we've been used while at Sundial, um, which I loved, um, was Micmac, right? And Micmac allows us to create and make all of our content into shoppable media. And so we had already been running a ton of different ad campaigns with them and really optimizing for those ad campaigns, improving the creative, improving um, the targeting of the audiences, building lookalike audiences. It was fun. We just were having fun while parallel pathing and working with you guys across some of our smaller brands, right? Shape, Nubian Heritage and the, and the like. Um, and so when the opportunity came up for us to be able to uh, bridge between the two and do the case study, which is really, I mean, you guys came to me and were like, we should do this. And I was like, this is a great idea. Um, and we saw it, right? It bore fruit. We saw, uh, you know, our baseline add to cart rate that we saw when working with Micmac across paid social assets was about three to 8%. When we ran that first round um, of highly curated content that came from social native, right? So it came from you guys. And we were able to have like very top-notch influencers who were creating content for us. Um, then we saw 18.4% add to cart rate. That was round one. And remember the benchmark was three to 8%. Um, and then when we made some creative optimizations, so we did optimizations in targeting and creative um, tar in specific to audience, as well as just the creative itself. Um, we saw a lift from 18.4 to 25.7% add to cart rate. 
um, which in a space where you often don't have any visibility or you have limited visibility into what products are actually being purchased on the retail side of the fence, just being able to have insight into um, and see the direct impact on improved creative, improved audience targeting on um, the add to cart, right? And actually seeing an increase in the purchase intent um, for me was exciting, but it was also a proof point, right? Um, that, and I'm sure people will roll their eyes at this, that really the stories you're telling and the way in which you tell the story, that really is the crux of things, right? We have all of these channels now. We have all of these vehicles. We have all of, you know, barriers to entry continue to lower more and more players, more and more choice, more and more brands, more and more products. All of that exists. And I think what's interesting is that in a time like this, that the storytelling is what becomes more prominent. I have always believed in storytelling. I think it's incredibly important. Um, but to me, I think it's going to become even more important. And so when you think about storytelling as a growth marketer, as a marketer in general, thinking about well, who are the people you're partnering with from an influencer side of the fence, from content, you know, from content partners um, with to you guys like Social Native or Micmac or anybody else that, you know, kind of chose to bring on board. Um, that becomes really, really, really key um, because it helps you then to be able to accelerate in the ways that you want to accelerate and test and learn, right? Because if we got different results, then we would have had different findings and would have pivoted and made different choices. But we saw that our hypothesis was right. Um, and continuing to see that hypothesis bear fruit is exciting. When you're testing creative, how much of it do you think is just testing different creatives with different people, different setup, just a, a different asset? versus kind of optimizing and iterating and following a path of creative optimization based on what performs in past ads? It's, it's a blend, right? So I am a performance marketer, a growth marketer at heart. So I'm always going to want to A-B test. Some people think that that doesn't make sense. Some people think it's nonsensical. I right, firmly believe in storytelling and I firmly believe in testing and learning. To me, let's say, for instance, you know, we'll take an example. You see products and you, you know, maybe we saw some creative where it was like, hey, if one of our influencers or one of our, you know, partners is holding up um, one of our products and smiling, that really, really works, right? Um, but I'm, you know, I just believe, okay, well, that's great. But then we have to kind of think about why. Um, so I think even before you begin to go down the rabbit hole of testing, you kind of have to, you got to be particular in building your hypothesis. So did it perform, does it perform well because we're posting every time, the same time every day, or is it because we're putting out the campaigns at the same time? Um, is it because we're targeting the same audience over and over? Um, so I think you, there's some, it's going to the former piece of what you were saying, there's some level of, first you've got to just spread it out as far as possible to see what you're going to get back. Right. So, hey, we've seen this work before. We're going to put this out there and try a multitude of different audiences. OK, cool. We're going to try different audiences. We're going to try doing it at different times. Let's see what happens. And then you kind of now you've called some data to go, OK. We saw certain things and we noticed that 
if we put this creative in this particular region, this works. I remember when I was working at Carol's Daughter and um, like Facebook ads were were like really starting to heat up and bubble up. And I literally was in there running them myself, right? Um, I literally would create like 40 different segments so that I could test, right? And some people will hear that and go, oh my God, my head hurts. But for me, I got excited by it because I was like, this, there's so many different segments. I'm going to make, create some parameters based upon what makes the most sense. And then I'm going to go, okay, what do I need to, what can I learn? And what I got back from that was really fascinating because, you know, I had maybe three different creatives in market and I really discovered that the creative that I thought was going to perform well in one region was actually the flip. It was the opposite. So like one out of the three dropped out and wasn't a strong performer. So I dropped, I, I pulled it out right away. And so the former, the, the remaining two, um, I noticed that my hypothesis where I was like, oh, well, this one I think is going to perform very well from a national perspective. I was wrong. Um, and that then helped me because then I optimized the campaign so that I flipped it and then creative A went to, you know, region one and creative B went to region two. Um, and actually I saw a decrease in, you know, cost per click and CAC, right? And then I also uh, saw just an increase in regards to the level of awareness, right? And consideration um, for the brand itself. And so, I mean, there's lots of KPIs you can always be looking at, but in that particular case, those are the ones I was looking at and those are the ones I was focusing on and it worked, right? And so I, I do feel like it's a blend um, and that then helped me to then continue learning and then making adjustments for future campaigns. Cause I'm like, Oh, I've gained this learning. So because I've gained this learning now, can I, I can apply it. And it's also taught me um, that I need to be a little bit tired about my hypotheses. When you're testing so many variables and so many different ads, what's the threshold of data that you get to before determining, okay, this is successful. I should keep testing it or I should pull this out of the running. Yeah. Um, so definitely for me, I'm also always looking at benchmarks, right? So oftentimes you don't necessarily have a benchmark yourself, right? Um, but you can, you can take a look at industry benchmarks. And at this point, there are at least industry benchmarks out there, um, particularly when it comes to paid campaigns, right? To give you a sense of what you think is going to work and what's not going to work. And so for me, I kind of had, a I would have a threshold in place. And it was like, okay, if something goes above this amount or something goes below, I take it out, right? It gets pulled out, it gets optimized, it gets shut down. And so then you can help to drill down very quickly, um, especially to your point with all those different variables, it helps to drill it down very quickly. So I'm a, I, I believe in having benchmarks and pulling benchmarks as best as you can. It's amazing. I'm sure you have so many, from all the various tests you've run, I'm sure you just have this collection of this works, this doesn't, like a checklist of best practices when you're now going in thinking about launching future campaigns. Okay, so you're leaving the corporate world to go back to the early stage startup world. Can you tell us a little more about your decision to make the transition? Sure. When I look back at my career, I, I'm clear that this is the right next step. Um, and of course, you know, working at a startup, there's a high level of risk. Um, and you're like, okay, here we go. Here we go. Right. It's not, we're literally starting up and it's early stage. <laughs> and so it's not yet an established business. You're not, there are all these, there are all these unknown variables. Um, but 
I did an assessment, right? And I really took a step back and I said to myself, um, where have you been most energized in your career, right? Like where, I really, really asked myself this question, like where was I, where have I been most energized throughout my career? What excites me the most? What um, lights me up, right? Because I think, you know, when you first enter the working world, you assume that a dream job means that you're going to love everything. That is not true. <laughs> that is not true. Um, that is just what it is. And it's not because, you know, there aren't really, really amazing jobs out there. Even really, really amazing jobs have pieces where it's like, I don't like this. Um, that's just, that's life, you know? Um, but I think early on in my career, if there was something I didn't like, then I was like, oh, then this must not work. Da, 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 da. But now I look back and I realize, like, it's like, no, it's, it's just about, uh, it's about curation, right? So it's really about what are the things that I love the most and that I get energized the most about and by. And for me, I am most energized um, in environments where there are lots of unknown variables. I'm most energized in environments that require uh, catalyst, right? That I'm, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm energized by that. It's exciting for me um, where other people are like, would freak out or be nervous or for me, it's like, all right, let's see what's going to happen. Let's see what's going to happen. Um, there's a great opportunity to learn. There's a great opportunity to learn. And for me, that, that, that was the, that was really the spark, right? Like when I really sat back and I was like, yes, oftentimes when you're in this early stage space, Things are highly nebulous. And sometimes it's like, oh, I wish there was more process. Or I wish there was more this. Da, 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 da. Um, but when I sat back, I was like, yeah, but if you were working on something that was really exciting to you and if you really were believing in the things that you were creating and like really helping to bring something to life, would that be worth it? Ask yourself the question, what energizes you most and what environments energize you most? But when you start to really keep asking yourself that question, then you start to see the dots connect. Then you can figure out how the skill set you've developed can apply to that. Or if there's a gap, and then maybe you need to go take a class or go learn something or go find a mentor, but then you can now figure out how what you've done and what you know how to do can apply to what energizes you. I love that. And my final question to you was going to be what, what was the best career advice you've ever received? But I feel like you just gave all of our listeners the best career advice that they'll ever receive. <laughs> Thank you. I will say this, because I was talking to my dad last night and we were cracking up on the phone. My dad is always, he reminded me that he, he was always telling us as, as kids, which is the truth. He always told us to make your vocation your vacation. He always told us that. Um, and I was telling him, I was like, you know, I'm really excited that, that I'm doing that, right? Like that it is exciting it's a blessing and I'm very grateful to, as I grow in my career, to continue to be energized by the work that I'm doing. That's not always the case for everybody, right? Um, so I'm very, very grateful and blessed and happy to be able to do that. Um, and something he always tells me just in particular, because he knows I can be very high energy, particularly when it comes to my work. So he's always telling me to pace myself. So I think that's the other piece too. I know self-care is something that everybody talks about now, but I personally have been invested 
in that space for a very, very long time because I'm, I've been on the other side where I did not take care of myself and I worked a hundred hour weeks. And so I know what the other side of the fence looks like. And after that, I was like, I'm never doing that to myself again. And so I think throughout my career, I've, because I pushed myself too far in certain arenas, then I've always had to kind of walk it back and be like, no, we're not doing that again. And I would just say to myself continually and to anybody listening um, to also just face yourself. That's very good advice. And I love it. I feel like we end on a really great note of how people can go beyond just the day to day of there's so much to do to pacing themselves and being very thoughtful about all of the work and how it impacts your overall happiness and how you make it your vacation. I love that. So thanks for joining, Sophia. It was really great to have you. Thanks, Baji. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.